I'm glad you all are here this morning. I hope when you leave this building in maybe 25 or 30 minutes, you will be just as glad and smiling. When I was a teenager in high school, um, I, I was blessed to enjoy a great group of friends who I'm actually still friends with today. When my wife first met them, um, as we were getting ready to get married, she literally stopped me and said, MJ, your friends are, are unbelievable. They're just wonderful. And, and it wasn't until that moment that I really got it, that not, not everyone has such a group of friends. And so anyway, um, I would spend time in high school with those friends, but I would also enjoy spending time by myself. And so sometimes I would love to drive out to the AMC Barrington movie theaters. They have 30 screens out there, and, and it was far from where I grew up in Glenview, but it was great because during the summer, let's say, I would be heading west on Lake Hook Road, and there was you know no one on the road at that time. I'd have the windows down. I'd have sometimes the music up, and sometimes I wouldn't have music on at all. I'd just be thinking, and, and, and it was just wonderful. I'd go out to a midnight movie because they have so many screens. They're, they're able to have movies that late. The problem is is that the movie would get done around 2 or 2.15, sometimes 2.30, and being the sleepy person that I am, I can almost fall asleep in any situation at any time, Um, it would be a little dangerous for me driving home. So often I would have to fight sleep on the way home, and and I, you know, I'd, I'd... during the winter, even, I'd roll the windows down so that the cold air could hit me. I'd turn the music up real loud. I'd even smack my face a little bit to the point of, of mildly stinging myself because, because I was in danger of dozing off. Now, when I would almost get into an accident, when I would start to veer off the side of the road or when I would hit the, the grooves in the concrete, so to speak, that make that aggravating noise... Oftentimes that would provide the, the surge of adrenaline that would wake me up for my final 10 to 12 to 15 minutes home. And so it's my hope this morning, it's my prayer that this message, um, that God uses it as a bit of a wake-up call for us. That God uses it to be hopefully like those grooves in the concrete to where we get a little surge of spiritual adrenaline to finish whether we've got 9 or 12 or 15 minutes left, so to speak, till we get home, or, or a lot more than that. But that we're awake for the remainder of our time on earth, fully living for God and fully fulfilling his purposes for us. I want to start, though, before we get into our brief passage, I want to start by sharing that I've been a bit haunted for the last five years in my walk with Jesus. Um, I've been haunted by the question is my daily and weekly routine, is the way that I spend my time, is this what Jesus died and set me free for, right? Jesus went to the cross so that I could have, and so that all of us could have full life, real and eternal life. And am I living out right now that full and eternal life that Jesus desires me to have? Is my routine of, you know, waking up in the morning and, and going to work and coming home for dinner and, you know, spending some time with my children and then watching some TV, doing some exercise, um, maybe going to see some movies and, and having a vacation and things of that nature. When I look at it big picture, uh, most of it is not inherently sinful, but when I look at it big picture and I step back, I say, is this how Jesus desires me to be using the brief moments of time that I have on earth. I think of 
myself and all of us as, as links in the chain of faith in Jesus going back to the 12 disciples and to Jesus himself. We believe because someone told us about Jesus. They believe because someone told them. They believe because someone told them. And all the way back, 2,000 years to Jesus. And then before that, all the way back. In many cases, all the way to Abraham. And so, I want to run my leg of the race. I want to run my lap of the race with, with complete excellence, with, with just a, a unfiltered focus on breaking the tape. But am I doing that? I don't have the answer to that for myself. I'm still chewing on it. But it's, it's a chewing and it's a wrestling that's very healthy and has been for my faith in Jesus. And then the other side of that coin that I've been haunted by is, is this recurring dream I have of running in water. Running with full strength and full effort. So that's good. You know, if you were to measure my pulse in my dream, it would be, you know, roaring, roaring full speed ahead. But I'm not really going anywhere. And so the other thing I'm haunted by is, is where's the power? Where's, where, where is God doing great things through me as I've seen him do great things through the people of the Bible? I've come to understand from teaching from God's word from the last seven years that the people in the Bible, while we often regard them as superstars of, of faith, they were just ordinary people. Jesus chose 12 disciples who were not educated, who were fishermen, who were tax collectors, who some of whom were despised. They, they had no, no credentials or resume to speak of, and yet he did great things through them. And so I wonder, God, where, where are these great things that, that I want you to be doing through me? I want to pray without ceasing. I want to run and not grow weary. I want to walk and not be faint. I want the peace of God that transcends all understanding to guard my heart and my mind in Christ Jesus. But it's often not. And when I look at the lives of other people I know who aren't following Jesus, in many cases I, I, I find I'm hard-pressed to find the difference between how I'm living and between how they are. And so our passage this morning, while it's only three verses, it takes place in the context of Paul talking about marriage. And talking about marriage in the sense of how can we be fully devoted to Jesus? And his personal opinion, he says, if it were completely up to me, my suggestion is that everyone should remain single so that you can, can just fully focus on God. Now, that doesn't mean that those of us who are married should, you know, should divorce our spouses. Of course not. And it doesn't mean those of us who are single should, should not follow through with our desires to be married if we have them. But Paul's trying to make a point. He's trying to say, whatever you do, whether you're married or unmarried, it's got to all be framed up and focused toward fulfilling the purpose and the mission that Jesus has for us. And so that's what he does. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, starting in verse 29, he gives us three verses on this. And it's almost uh, an attention deficit disorder moment that Paul often has, where he's talking about one topic and then he's like, oh yeah, and by the way, and then he takes us down a completely different rabbit trail, but it's a good rabbit trail. So here's what he says. In verse 29, he says, what I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on... And let me pause and have a little ADD moment of my own here. He's saying from now on. 
Something new has just happened. For the first time and only time in history, death has been conquered. Jesus went to the cross, he went to the tomb for three days, and then he came back to life. So Paul's saying from now on, since death has been conquered for those who love Jesus, and then for those who love Jesus, now that you have God living in you through his Holy Spirit, (laughs) if God be for us, who can be against us? From now on, now that these two great earth-shattering miracles have happened, from now on we should be living a little differently because of these unprecedented acts that have just happened. From now on, those who have wives or husbands should live as if they have none. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of this world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. So Paul is is trying to sober us up and, and I think snap us back to reality a bit. He didn't have to deal with 500,000 plus really neat apps on his tablet. But he had to deal with other things that distracted him from the Lord. Some things that were sinful and some things that inherently were not sinful. But they were distractions. Paul's reminding us of what the writer in Hebrews says when he says, let's throw off everything that hinders Let's throw off the sin that so easily entangles and let's run with perseverance the race marked out for us. So there are some things that are are sin and that are going to entangle us. But he says there are some things that that aren't sin, but they might not entangle us, but they'll slow us down from running this race that God has marked out for us. I've done very few things in my walk with Jesus over the last 12 plus years that have raised the eyebrows of non-believers or even other Christians, where they would say, MJ, whoa, 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 slow down, brother. Hold on. Why don't you tone this love for Jesus down a little bit? You're getting a little bit crazy here. I've never had anyone say that. And part of me thinks that might be a problem because of all the people, when I look through Scripture, of all the people who had foolish and reckless love for God, foolish by the the non-biblical world standards. As I was preparing for this message, a thought hit me. That there is sometimes an appropriateness, there's sometimes a prudency to our faith in Jesus, at least in the West, at least in America, that's, that's sinful. And so I want to look spend a little bit of time going through just a few people in Scripture who have had this kind of reckless love for God. Ordinary people, but who I kind of, I want to be like. I want to be like them. I don't exactly have all the answers as to how to get there, but together, hopefully, we can can do it. So let's go back and and look at Noah for a second. When he was building the ark, when God came to him and said, there's going to be this great flood and I want you to build this giant boat, Some scholars believe that it took Noah and his family a hundred years to build the ark. A hundred years. Now you can imagine building a boat in the middle of an an open field and, and Noah's neighbors the first week or the first month saying, hey, what are you doing? And he said, well, I'm building this boat. Okay, maybe they were, you know, check it out and see what's going on. God's going to send this flood. But then after a year, after a decade, after a half century, 
there's, the Bible doesn't specifically talk about this, but there had to have been a time when the neighbors started to ridicule him a bit. To say, what, what are you doing? Well, God told me. Well, yeah, but God told you like 84 years ago. I mean, is God, holy moly, what, is he busy? Is he, is he you know, did he forget about you? And even some scholars believe that back then, before the flood, they, they believe that it had never rained from the sky yet on earth, that God had watered the plants of the field and whatnot through underwater springs in the ground. And so not only was there this long time span, but Noah said, yeah, and God's going to flood the earth and this water's going to fall from the sky. So the people are like, well, that's never happened before, Noah. So there must have been this sense of, your, your zeal and love for God is a little bit crazy. But thankfully, he and his family didn't buckle under the, under the peer pressure, so to speak. And they continued to build that boat because the flood, of course, did come. You look at Abraham, who God appeared to, and a God that he didn't even know at this point yet, in, in what is now southern Iraq. And God said, Abraham, Abram, go and leave your culture and your people. Take a few members of your family, but leave your career, leave your dreams, leave everything you've ever known and go to this land that I'm going to give to you and to your descendants forever. Wow. Imagine as he's packing up and getting ready to leave on this long journey, what some of his family and friends must have said to him. You're doing this because of a dream you had? I mean, it, we're so familiar with these stories that we're like, yeah, Abram left, of course. But if we put ourselves into the context and into his sandals and some of these folks, we realize how absolutely ludicrous it was what God was asking them to do. Moses, God appeared to him in a burning bush and said, I want you, a stuttering murderer, to go back to the place where you're wanted and I want you to stand before Pharaoh and the, and the mightiest nation and army in the known world and I want you to make a demand of him. I want you to declare to him, let God's people go. And Moses was like, and he argues with God, and he says, not me, send someone else. I can't do it. I need help. And God's like, fine, I'll help you. I'll give you, you know, your brother and a stick. Is that good enough? (laughs) And so he was ill-equipped by our worldly standards, but he did it. And look at the miracle that God brought from it. Look at the Israelites when God was going to free them from Egypt. And he said, paint the blood of lambs on your doorposts. I mean, let's just pause for a second. I mean, if God wanted us to paint our front doors like neon orange, most of us wouldn't do it because of what the neighbors would say. And it's so weird and it lowers the value of our house, let alone painting the blood of animals. And we think, you know, in some ways that, well, you know, that was 4,000 years ago, so that was normal. I don't think that was ever normal to paint animal blood on your doors. But they did it. And thank the Lord that they did it. Because the angel of death came through. You think about Joshua as the, the people of God or the Israelites are going to enter the promised land. And there's this huge fortified city with, with towering walls. And, and, you know, the Israelites aren't soldiers. They're, they don't, they, they're thinking, how are we going to build a siege? I mean, how do we even do this? And God says, oh, don't worry. Just march around it once every day. And then on the seventh day, march around it seven times and blow some trumpets. And the walls will fall down. I mean, think about the act of faith that that must have taken on their part. Think about what some of the soldiers of Jericho must have been shouting down 
from the tops of those walls or maybe through openings in the wall at how foolish the Israelites looked and yet they obeyed and look what happened. Gideon, where God said, I want you to save your people from these bands of marauders that have been attacking you and, and robbing you of your produce and, and, and perhaps of your women and children. But I, I want you to take your army of 10,000 warriors and I want you to scale it down a little to about 320. That doesn't make any sense. Why? Who would do that? Who, if we were going out for a walk in, in a cold snowstorm, would take off some of our layers of clothes in order to do it? But that's essentially what God was asking Gideon to do. And he did it. And then he also said, yeah, and you're not going to even need swords. Just take some clay pots and some torches and make a lot of noise. I mean, guys, think about this, how utterly fantastic it was. But Gideon did it, and God delivered him. Samson, imagine Samson's parents, where some of their friends were like, hey, your son Samson, are you going to cut his hair? You know? And they're like, no, God told us not to. We're just not going to ever cut his hair. How goofy is that? But they did it. That's what God wanted. Or David, when he charged Goliath with a sling and five stones, when the mightiest warriors of Israel were shaking in their armor, they're like, we don't want any piece of that nine-foot giant. And 14-year-old David's like, are you kidding? We, we can't let him talk about God that way. If you're not going to do something, I will. And he marched out, and David, Goliath laughed at him. And then a few moments later, Goliath was on the ground because of what God did through David. You think about this guy, Arauna, in the, the Bible, who owned the property on which the, the temple of the Lord was going to be built. And when he saw David kind of checking out this area as David was making the plans for building God's temple that his son Solomon would finish, Arauna said, I want to give you this land. It, will you honor me by allowing me to give you this land free of charge? If we had children or relatives who wanted to give away, you know, their hard-earned piece of, of property that they worked for and, and, and the home that maybe they just finished paying the mortgage off on, and they're, they're like, you're, you're going to give this so a local church can be built here and you're just going to go, like, live in an apartment somewhere? We would think that's, that's nuts. But that's what Arauna did. And then David did something equally ridiculous. And he said, no, no, no. That's so kind of you to want to give it to me for free, but I want to pay for it out of my own purse. Even though I'm the king, I'm not going to use treasury funds. I want to pay for it out of my own purse, and I want to give you the full market value for it. So imagine in this economy, again, if, if one of our children you know, had just gotten married and they were getting ready to buy their first home, and they were getting a great deal on a piece of property, and they're like, no, mom and dad, we want to actually we want to pay twenty or thirty or fifty thousand more for it because we just we want to give the people selling it a good deal. We would think that's crazy, but that's what David did. Think about Elijah and the widow. There was a famine going through you know all of the the Middle East, and so people were dying left and right because of starvation. And there was this widow and her son, and we read that she only had a little bit of oil and a little bit of flour left. Just enough. They were on the verge of starvation. Just enough to make one final meal. And when she saw Elijah coming, she said, we're going to make one final meal for me and my son. We're going to eat a few bites. Then it'll all be gone. And it hasn't rained in years. Then we're just going to die. And so Elijah says, you know what? When you're making that final meal, make a little bit for me. You imagine what that widow must have thought. You want me to share with you? 
We're starving. Hello? Are you kidding? My son and I are about to die, and, and you, haven't I given enough? Haven't I shared enough already? Maybe, she thought. But she did it. And then the miracle was that her jar of oil and her jar of flour, it never ran out. Miraculously, because of God, not because of Elijah. But it never ran out until rain finally came and food started growing again. Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 20, some scholars believe God asked Isaiah to walk around naked and barefoot as a testimony against Judah that God was eventually going to carry them into exile. I don't think I need to say anything else for that. God asked him to walk around naked and barefoot. Enough said. Naaman, God told him through the prophet Elisha or Elisha to dip his body, his sore-covered body, this great warrior in the Jordan River seven times. And scripture even records that he says, this is foolish. I'm going to dip my, I came all this way to just dip my body seven times up and down in this water. But he eventually did it. And sure enough, as God promised, his skin became clean. Hosea. God asked Hosea to marry a prostitute. Wow. Because he wanted to teach Hosea and he wanted to teach Israel about the love that God has for his people through him marrying a prostitute. Mary, the mother of Jesus, risked ridicule by accepting the great honor of carrying the Son of God in her womb and being his mom. Probably she was a smart young lady and she probably realized fairly quickly what everyone was going to say for the rest of her life. Every time she left the house, the glances, the gossip, the looks. Oh, God conceived this baby in you? Right, Mary, sure. That's what happened, isn't it? I haven't heard that one before. But she endured it because of the honor God gave her. And similarly, Joseph, the stepdad of Jesus, had to deal with that, I'm sure, for the rest of his earthly life. You think about Zechariah, the dad of John the baptizer, who wanted to name his son John, and he got some, some flack. He got some, some pressure from some of his relatives. You can't name him that, Zechariah. The, the, the name John is, is nowhere in our lineage. But he said, no, this is what God told me to do. So imagine maybe you wanted to, I don't know, name your son like Ebenezer or something, or Mephibosheth from the Old Testament. People are like, he's going to get beaten up for the rest of his life. You know, like, well, God told me to do it. I, I don't understand it, but this is what God's telling me. It would seem crazy. Jesus' disciples left everything to follow him. They left career, parents, boats, nets, everything. Matthew left a lucrative job collecting taxes for the Roman government. And then Paul, among the many ridiculous things that Paul did for Jesus and in his love for God, there was a time when Paul was in prison for something he didn't do, and um, an angel freed him, literally broke the chains off his, his wrists and his ankles, the, the gates of the prison flew open, the, some of the walls started crumbling, and the, the Roman guard, the, the keeper of the prison, was getting ready to take his own life because he knew that in, under Roman law, when, when prisoners escape, your life is forfeit. And Paul said, no, 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 don't worry. Don't, don't end your life. God's broken us out, but I'm not actually going to leave. <laughs> I want to tell you about Jesus a little bit. 
So, I mean, just imagine he gets broken out of prison and he's like, yeah, but I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to stay and share Jesus with you first. Who would do that? I wouldn't. I would be running as fast as I could to get home and, and tell of the wonders that God did for me. But he paused and did something crazy because of his love for Jesus. Those are just 18 groups or people in the Bible. There's more. There's plenty more. But hopefully you get the picture that I'm trying to paint here, that when we step back a little bit and when we look at Scripture, we see people doing foolish and reckless things. Foolish not by God's wisdom, but foolish by the world's wisdom, by the wisdom that doesn't concern itself with God's Word. And so at this point, hopefully you're asking, well, okay, well, 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 what are we supposed to do then? And and I, I I don't have a formula. I'm still trying to work this out in my own heart. But I do have a couple of suggestions for us. The first thing is, there's two sides to this next steps coin. For some of us, the first side of the coin is we're going to have to kind of step up and get in the game a bit. For some of us, we are going to have to start doing more, right? Because we're not doing much for Jesus in his name. But I don't want most of us to walk out of this room and think, okay, I just got to do more because I, I know many of the faces that I'm looking at. You guys do so much for God already. So the second side of this coin is not so much doing more for God, but doing what we're already doing for him with, with an infusion or an injection of this reckless love, this, this foolish, quote-unquote, love for God. That if we start doing some of the regular things we already do, going to the grocery store, folding clothes, playing catch with our kids, you know, reading the Bible and praying before bed, those types of what we might call mundane things, if we do that with the love of Jesus and if we do that with a sense of, God, how can I, how can I bless the people in my vicinity right now, my neighbors, my, my coworkers, um, the, the people in the checkout line at, at the grocery store? I'm ready, God, if there's anything that you're going to say to me. If there's anything you want me to do that seems a little strange, maybe you do, maybe you don't, but I'm, I'm at least listening for your call and for your voice. That, that's, that's one thing. Um, and then secondly, I think to have some kind of a, um, a self-audit of how we are spending our time and, and being able to look at it, our schedules and our routines with no sacred cows saying, what... What is, what is either sinful that's entangling me from living out my mission for Jesus or what is simply good but not great? What is simply just weighing me down and hindering me from running the race with perseverance that God has marked out for me? Anyone who's run a marathon knows you, you don't strap 10-pound weights to your ankles. You just don't do that. A marathon's hard enough without the extra weight. And so some of us are carrying extra weight and we've got to just look at it prayerfully, look at our schedules with our, with our spouses and, and our small group, maybe some other Christians we trust and say, what, what, what is some excess here? What can we remove so that we can more fully run this race? We can ask questions of ourselves and in our small groups, questions like, do I really need to spend as much time and energy and money um, exercising? How much good health do I need? How, how, how trim is trim enough? You know, if I'm spending three or four hours a week on exercising, or maybe seven or eight or ten or twelve, how, how much is enough? These particular bodies, we need to take care of them, but they're not going to last forever no matter what we do. 
So how can we maybe shave some time there? Do I really need to work as many hours as I do? And I've been especially convicted of this the last three or four years because it's so easy in the house of God here at this local church. You know, it's so easy to just work 60 or 70 hours a week. You get, you get good pats on the back. You really feel like you're doing God's work. But I'm robbing from Peter to pay Paul because my family is suffering. Is there a standard of living that I'm working to maintain or working to attain that distracts me from God's purpose in my life, from what he's called me to do? I don't know. When was the last time I sat down and gave my spouse, children, a friend, a neighbor, a coworker, or even a stranger my undivided attention where I really sought to ask them questions about them, where I sought to listen to them more than talk about myself? And while I was listening, to listen to what they're saying and say, God, in my mind, God, how can I just bless this person? How can I encourage them? How can I strengthen them? How can I, how can I brighten their day or their life just a little bit? Is there anything I can do? When's the last time we, we did that? Do we know our geographical neighbors? And do they have any idea how great God is? Do they have any idea how much God loves them? Do they have any idea how much they need him? Do they have any idea how much I love him? Maybe they do, maybe they don't. But they should. Not in a disrespectful way, not in a sledgehammer over the head way, but they should know. They probably know if we run marathons because they see us doing it. Things like that. And, and Jesus said, let our light shine before people so that people can see our good works and praise our Father in heaven. We can commit to asking Jesus each morning, how can I love my spouse, children, friends, family, neighbors, coworkers, strangers in an expensive, out-of-my-comfort-zone type of way? And, and again, I've never heard the audible voice of God saying, speak to that person. But over time, as, I, as I'm trying to practice just this listening to God, there will be moments where I, I, I think maybe God wants me to pray for them. Or I think maybe God wants me to to send them a note on Facebook and really see how they're doing. I think God wants me to do X, Y, or Z. I think. We can ask the Holy Spirit each morning. Holy Spirit, I'm so easily distracted. You know that I'm I'm like sheep and that I easily go astray. Help me to be completely focused today on loving you and loving others. Help me to lament the fact that I only have one earthly life to pour out for you. Help me to show others how great you are, how much you love them, and how much they need you. And so I want to just close with a couple passages of Scripture. Because the last thing I want is for you to leave here and say, well, MJ said some stuff, but where, where was the Bible? Okay, So let's, let's, let's just listen to a few pa- different passages of Scripture, most of which are from First and Second Corinthians, so it's kind of in the context of the message here. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul writes this in the message translation. He says, Companions as we are in this work with you of loving God and loving others, we beg you, please don't squander one bit of this marvelous life that God has given us. Please don't ignore this invitation that Jesus makes of us, for us and to us, that he invites us to full life, real life, life to the full. Remember that God reminds us, I heard your call in the nick of time. The day you needed me, I was there to help. And so Paul's saying, so be there for others when they need help. 
Show them that God is with them by being his hands and feet in their lives. Now is the time to listen, Paul continues. Now is the day to be helped. Don't put it off. Don't frustrate God's work by showing up late, by throwing a question mark over everything the local church is doing. Our work as God's servant gets validated or not in the details. Because the unbelieving world, they're watching us as we stay at our post for Jesus, alertly, unswervingly, foolishly loving him and others. As we do this in hard times, in tough times, in bad times, as we love God and others when we're beaten up, jailed, and mobbed, as we work hard for the Lord, as we work late for the Lord, working without eating sometimes so that others can eat, as we love Jesus and others with a pure heart and a clear head and a steady hand, as we love our spouses and our children and our neighbors, especially those who are hard to love, as we love them with gentleness and holiness and honest, real love, when we're telling the truth and when God is showing his power, when we're doing our best, setting things right with those we've wronged. When we're praised and when we're blamed by others, we're continuing to love God and other people. When we're slandered or when we're honored, when we're true to our word, though we're distrusted by all, when we're ignored by the world, when, but when we're recognized by God, We're terrifically alive, though we're rumored to be dead. We're beaten within an inch of our lives, but we refuse to give up on Jesus. We're immersed in tears, yet we're always filled with deep joy because the promises of God cannot be changed by our circumstances. We're living on handouts, yet enriching many. We're having nothing in the eyes of the world, yet having it all. And yet later on in 2 Corinthians, five chapters later in chapter 11, Paul says this, and yet after all that, I'm afraid. I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by the serpent's craftiness, I'm afraid that your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and the purity of devotion to Jesus. I've been led astray. I've been distracted. But I want to be purely devoted to Jesus in everything. But like the disciples who fell asleep when Jesus was praying in the garden, my spirit is willing, but my body's weak. And I need God's help. And not only do I need God's help, I need your guys' help. I need people to model for me what it means to live recklessly and foolishly for God as I model for the middle schoolers in my own family. I got just a couple minutes left. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul tells us, you will be made rich in every way. Think about this, 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul's telling us why we have been made rich in intelligence and in education and in opportunity and in physical health and in longevity of life and in, and in knowing the gospel and in the freedoms we have to grow closer to Jesus. We're, we're, we've been blessed richly that we don't have to spend a month's salary to get one Bible for our entire neighborhood or local church. He's saying you will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. That's why God's blessed us, so that we can be generous with our time, our personality, with our popularity, with our charisma, with our gifts from the Lord, with our money, with our intelligence, and all of those things, so that we can be a blessing. Final verse. Luke chapter 9, Jesus says this, and this is another haunting verse. He said to them all, If anyone would come after me, 
That person must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Whew. I don't, I don't like splinters. And carrying the cross that Jesus has given to me is heavy and it's burdensome and it gives me splinters and it chafes and it's, I want to do anything but carry it. But Jesus says, you got to carry this. Not so that we get into heaven. Absolutely not. We are justified. We are forgiven because of our faith in Jesus, because of his work on the cross. But we are sanctified. We are made and conformed more to be like Jesus because of our, our work with him, our dance with the Holy Spirit day in and day out as he gives us tasks to do and as we do them the best of our ability, with love for God and others. What good is it for a person to gain the whole world, yet lose or forfeit their very self? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him or her when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and in the glory of the Father, and in the glory of the holy angels. Please pray with me. Almighty God, Holy Spirit, I want to take a little bit longer with this prayer because you blessed me to finish 90 seconds early and I'm going to use every moment I'm given. So Holy Spirit, please, I invite you. We're going to have a little time of extended prayer. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would speak to us. That you would start to train us and teach us to listen to you and to pause and reflect Holy Spirit, I pray that this would not be the last quiet moment we have until next weekend, until next Sunday morning in these pews. Holy Spirit, what do you want to say to us, to each one of us individually? Who can we love extravagantly today? Who can we love in a way that makes us uncomfortable, but that makes them smile? Holy Spirit, who can we apologize to today? Holy Spirit, who can we forgive today? As complicated as that word is, who can we at least take the first steps toward forgiving today? Holy Spirit, free us from the sin that entangles us. Help us to identify, convict us of what those sins might be in our lives. Holy Spirit, help us to know if there is anything that's hindering us, any good thing that might be hindering us from loving you and loving others. We love you, God. May this conversation with you not end, but continue throughout this week and throughout the rest of our earthly lives. 
and let us sing to you and praise you for your patience and grace and mercy for us. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.